Are you married or single? Well, on today's podcast, we're going to be diving into a very complicated and personal passage where Paul addresses many of the issues that were happening in the church of Corinth when it came to sex and how to go about intimacy in marriage and remaining single. So get out your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's get into it. Hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Hammond is with you as always. Blessed to be with you guys as we continue to do a chronological study in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. We have been diving into some major rich passages, and I just encourage you guys, if you have missed any previous books, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, Galatians, I encourage you guys to go check those things out. In even the book of James, which man, I I would love to go back to that, and and just restudy it myself. Uh, just amazing things, isn't it? When you just allow the word of God, just trekking through, and just say, okay, Lord, this is a difficult passage. I don't know a lot about what is going on here. Help me to be faithful to the fidelity of your word. Instruct me. Teach me personally. And then as I come to my brothers and sisters on the podcast, I pray that we would be able to fellowship in the spirit around the world together. That's truly my prayer. Uh, Here sitting in studio as looking at 1 Corinthians 7, we do definitely enter a very personal and very complex passage of scripture and just saying, God, speak to the people who are going to listen to this. Speak to the people who you have called to download this message. You could be walking exercising, cooking dinner, in the car, at your home with the Bible open, ready to dive in. And I'm so thankful, whether you're married, single, a widow, a widower, uh, engaged, or you're young and you're anticipating getting married, this, this is for you guys. This is a very touchy subject. The title is Advice for Married Couples and Singles. And as we're going into 1 Corinthians 7 now, Paul goes from 1 Corinthians 6 of confronting sexual sin. And again, if you've missed that, you could check out those other episodes wherever you download your podcasts. And before we dive in, can I just say a few things just from my heart? I want to say, if you find this podcast engaging and it's encouraging you in your faith, let us know. Drop us a note at info at stanstrongministries.org. Leave a review. Share these messages to your friends and family members, put it on social media, let people know, hey, if you desire to be grounded in God's word, to do an exegetical verse-by-verse teaching of scripture in chronological order, stand strong in the word is for you. And it's unique in that. It's unique. There's not a lot that is out there that does this type of deep dive into scripture. And and as you know, if you've been following the, the this podcast for a while, you know, There are times when it's like, you know what, we could push through this a bit further, but let's just pause and let's continue it in the next episode. And and that's what we try to do, right? So the agenda here is to honor God in his word, to obey his word, to be washed and guided and instructed and convicted by his word. And so I pray that is the case for you, my friends, as we look at this new passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So with that being said, what we're going to tackle is really we're going to go all the way, Lord willing, to verse 9. 
Now, this is 40 verses in chapter 7. And so there is a lot here. And I'm going to be honest. There are some things that we're going to touch on that I wish we could go deeper or there could be some things I'm going to tell you. I don't really know exactly what Paul is trying to get across. You know, again, like one of the things, let me just throw out there, give you an example. Was he really married at some point in his life? Did his wife die? Uh, was he divorced? I don't believe that he was divorced. Some commentators I remember in seminary were talking about because he was converted and he left the Sanhedrin and his wife was probably, again, a Roman citizen as well and a Jew um, that did want to walk that path with him and rejected him and abandoned him, if you will. Who knows? We don't know. So that's the point. It's speculative. Everybody has their peace just like the book of Hebrews, why some people think Apollos wrote it or why Paul, uh, they believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. These things we can debate out loud and respectfully. And at the end of the day, until we stand before the Lord in his presence, we can ask him and, and finally have the answer. So there are going to be some things as we're walking along that I'm going to touch on and I'm going to tell you, this is what Paul's probably saying. I'm not sure. You know, we, and then maybe we can cross-reference it somewhere else or look at it at the Greek or refer to a, a, a reputable, prominent scholar or commentator that has a take on it and that I can share with you. But at, at the end of the day, this is what I want to say to you guys before we look in the text. Again, if you are married, then you're going to perceive and look into things a certain way because Paul is really trying to address and harmonize the status of where relationships are at in Corinth and a lot of the confusion and, and, and bad influence, right, that they've had. And so he's really trying to help these carnal Christians not only denounce former life in Christ, right, that it's no longer I live, but it's Christ who lives in me, but not bringing those bad practices or the way in which they're raised or philosophers or influencers telling them, oh no, seek your gratification, you know, sex can is, is, a, is a pleasurable thing. You don't need to be married with people you're having sex with. Like when you're raised in that culture and that's been accepted, it's hard for once they come to Christ to say, well, no, that, that is wrong. Now, a lot of them knew that it was wrong, but then he's trying to, again, disciple them, teach them the truth of God's word and apply it into their lives and see the fruit, the result of that. Because a lot of them never experienced that. So at the same time, and, and we know this, if you are an older Christian, particularly if you're a parent or a leader, a pastor, how many times when you're trying to help someone see the truth because they've been lied to for so long and you're going to have to reprogram them, if you will, it takes time. If you, if you learn to do something a certain way and someone says, here's a better way to do it, in some sense, internally, you can feel like you you're going to betray the person who taught you to do something growing up. Again, a parent, a family member, a leader, spiritual leader. And then the other thing is just when you have mechanically learned to do something a certain way, it can, it can take time for you to alter, right, that certain mechanism neurologically to then start performing something a different way and accept it, okay? It takes time. And I say that because if you're single and you're wrestling through, should I be married? Should I not be married? 
Or if you're in a relationship and you're not married, but you're having sex outside of marriage, that's sexual morality. And I'm glad you're listening to this podcast and know that Jesus Christ loves you and that the Bible actually addresses these principles for marriage and for sex in its proper context. And that's a good thing, okay? So as we dive in, I pray this really speaks to you guys. And so with that being said, and I do apologize a little bit for that kind of intro, kind of long, but I think it's necessary because I really want to come with a heart of compassion to all of my listeners out there, whatever your status may be. If you lost a, lo- a, a, a spouse, if you're engaged, if you are married and you're struggling or you're in a good marriage or you're single and, you're, and, you, and got, that's your calling in life to be celibate or you are um, in a relationship and you're not having sex, but you want to marry this person and you want to have a good marriage down the road. This podcast is for you guys, regardless of your status relationally. So with that being said, let's dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devout or devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." So there we have it, as you can see right off the bat, Paul is addressing a complaint or a question or an argument that people are using for why it's not, it's, it's not good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, I want you to understand as we're going to be breaking this down for the next few podcasts that chapter seven is divided into two parts. And the way that we know this is because if you dive into the Greek, you'll see the Greek phrase parade. And this is how Paul starts off in his response to the two primary questions or complaints or issues that were raised by the Corinthians from a letter that he had received. So what we're going to actually see, and, we're, and, and we'll get into in the next episode, one was about Christian marriage and sexual intercourse. And this is from verses 1 through 24. So the, the entirety of half of the passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul responding to Christian marriage and sexual intercourse. And then we see him responding in verses 25 through 40 about virgins getting married. Okay? So just let's understand that. So this phrase, not to have sexual relations, this is a euphemism for sexual intercourse that was presented by Paul by the Corinthians. And it reveals how little, as I said in the opening, that they actually knew about the fidelity of marriage. Now, some of you perhaps can relate to this. Now, on the Jimenez side of the family, on my family, my dad's side, a lot of divorce. 
lot of infidelity, a lot of betrayal and abandonment. And so coming from that, when I was getting engaged to my wife now after over 20 plus, 22 plus years as I'm recording this, there was deep down a fear of what would my marriage, especially when our first marriage was not easy, okay? The honeymoon, if you will, like we say here in America, was shortly lived. It didn't last long and there was conflict and it's hard to, when you're becoming one flesh, to consider the other more than yourself, right? Philippians chapter two, first Peter three, seven. And so that fear, because of what I saw growing up and the dysfunction, clearly even on my mom's side of the family, both of them have never really seen a strong marriage, a godly marriage grounded in love and respect, according to Ephesians chapter 5, 19 through 32, 33. And so if you're listening and you yourself, hey, I'm like the Corinthians in a sense, maybe not out there in debauchery, but the fidelity of marriage hasn't been something that has really been modeled to me. You'll relate then, okay? So when he says, which you wrote, now what we have to understand is Paul at some point, again, he received something, a letter from the Corinthians sometime after his visit with them, okay? And if you want to go back to you know, his ministry, um, his missionary journeys, we covered the book of Acts. And that's, again, that's, that's a great, so if you're new to the podcast and you're like, man, you know what, actually, I'd really like to dive into, to, to looking at Paul's ministry, go check out our podcast, you know, and this podcast in the book of Acts. So he had received a letter from the Corinthians sometime after his visit. And, and so he will cite this letter several times in his discourse. You, you'll see it again in verse 25. He'll mention it again in chapter eight. He'll mention it again in chapter 12. And he'll mention it in chapter 16. What does that tell us? It tells us that the reason why, mainly, he wrote 1 Corinthians is to respond to the concerns and questions that the Corinthians had. Now, again, it seems to be in reference to a motto that he is referring to that some Christian believers were teaching others, and they put it into the letter basically as, as a debate saying, um, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, right? Paul, this is why. This is what we were raised to believe. Others are countering it and saying no. Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say about that. That's what he's dealing with here. And that's important to understand. I like what the Cultural Background Study Bible says, quote, a small number of Greek sages, mostly cynics, rejected marriage as a distraction, but permitted intercourse with prostitutes as a way of re- reliving one's passions or relieving one's passions. The one, the, the one early cynic known to have married was Cretus when Hippocoria persuaded him that she could share the radical homeless cynic lifestyle. So most philosophers, however, defended marriage as a valuable for procreation and child rearing and thus good for society. Stoics held this view, although they discouraged passion in regulated or relegated the purpose of intercourse solely to procreation. Two small Jewish sects apparently rejected marriage for themselves and following biblical moral teaching, therefore demanded celibacy. There's good reason to believe that if the Aseans, many of whom lived in the wilderness, were celibate, and the same is said for more obscure 
groups called therapeutiae. Okay, so that encapsulates some of the Greek movements within the Cynics, and then you see with the Stoics, and then you see different Jewish sects who regarded how they regarded marriage or how they lived. So again, there's all these different movements and ideologies. And so Paul then in verse two is now going to start addressing this. So when it says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So again, remember, sex outside of marriage was very prevalent in this culture. And having sex is not the only reason now, let's just understand. Um, it's not the only reason or, or the main reason, right, for getting married. God has made male and female part of our identity in our in our anatomy and physiologically and physically is um, as sexual creatures. And so a male and female get married and they have sex. And, and, and sex is an intimate, beautiful gift that is shared between a male and a female husband and wife that in that covenantal relationship. And obviously for most, if you will, couples, procreation through the act of sex happens, right? Where they have children and they rear those children. That's what, that's God's beautiful divine design. So it's important that a couple follows God's order to have sexual relationship, relationships in a covenantal marriage. Now, being faithfully married and sharing an in intimacy, we, you and I know that that is the most rewarding. If you're experiencing it right now, you know that's the most rewarding. That's, that's God's design. And it's fruitful, right? It's a fruitful kind of relationship that God created. Even Solomon. Now, we know Solomon is recorded as the wisest person who lived, but at the end of his life, he certainly didn't live according to God's design. Wasn't living according to God's will for his life. He was a man who committed sexual morality on countless occasions, and but yet he wisely confessed this truth. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So there is, and I've counseled as a pastor, I mean, more men... Primarily, I never, you know, counseled women alone, but when I would do marriage counseling or I would bring in a female um, staff or support to address some things uh, with a woman maybe who was going through a relationship where she was, she discovered that her husband was cheating on her. We all know that that's forbidden, that's sinful. And then of course, over a course of time, many men regretted being intoxicated and pursuing through flirting and then eventual whatever, um, sexual acts with a woman. Um, I've even counseled men who've had an emotional attachment and that's still wrong. It's a form of adultery. It is adultery at, at, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and so it's unbearable for a lot of people. And so you, this intoxication is you think that this is the best thing for you and you need to pursue it. And that's what a lot of the Corinthians were doing. They feel like, well, we have these desires and there is no loyalty. There's no fidelity within marriage. There's no desire for me to even get married. Isn't sex just a pleasurable thing? And so this is what he's having to address, okay? And you know what? Let me just say this. Even though this was happening in the first century, I mean, look at our culture today. 
I mean, even my church alone, thousands of people attend there. I know, and I even know per, some of them that have come in confidence who are committing sexual morality in all different forms, right? We know the Greek word is parnea that we saw in First Corinthians 6, in the, in, but, but it's the ever-increasing of the sin. You know, you start off with lust, and then you start off with, with pornography, and you, and you continues to grow. Then if they're a married person and they're pursuing pleasures outside of, you know, with their spouse, that's a, that's a form of sexual morality. And then, of course, some people find uh, people, whether it be on a dating app or at their work or whatever the case may be, and they're sleeping around. So that's not going to bring joy in the end, Okay. So clearly there are a lot of issues that the Corinthians were dealing with. And so Paul, in a very bold and fatherly and in pastoral way, is addressing these things. And that's why he says the husband should give, literally when it says the husband should give to his wife, it literally means give back that which is owed, her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Now this is where things start getting really confusing. People are like, what, what is he talking about? Like, is this like domineering the other person? What are conjugal rights? There's a lot of confusion. Now, I want to say this. It's very sad to think about that many Corinthians, remember, were brought up, okay, to believe that marriage was just, if they were married, it was just a contractual agreement. So it wasn't about love. So even those who were married didn't mean that they were in love, okay? And even among the Judeans, marriage contracts were written up to ensure each spouse fulfilled certain obligations, isn't that sad? So again, if you were not fulfilling those certain obligations, then they would say this marriage is over because you did not heed or follow through with your portion, with your part of the bargain. So let's dive a little bit deeper into what these conjugal rights are. Now there's different perspectives when it comes to the Jewish and Greek ways of what conjugal rights are, but this is specifically to Paul as a Jew taking the truth of God's word of marriage as a covenantal relationship in the Jewish scriptures. And he's going to be applying it to the, to the Greeks, not because they're Jewish. They, they, they've turned, they converted to Judaism again, not in that way, but he's bringing into the truth of how God has designed marriage to be. And so Paul describes with these conjugal rights, he's describing the role and the responsibilities of a husband and a wife in a covenantal marriage. Now, you can see this in greater detail in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, and Colossians chapter 3, 18 through 19. So a couple is to share their respective duties within marriage. So this is what he's teaching them. So think about you're in a course, and you're taking a marriage course, and you're getting the practicality, the ABCs. You're getting the foundational principles of what marriage is about. And that's what Paul is pointing out. He's saying, hey, this is, this is one of the duties that you are called to do. It's not the primary, but one of the duties is for the married couple to experience sexual intimacy together. Remember, that's only shared between the two of you. you don't, you're not to share that. You're not to have sexual intimacy with no one else, okay? Now, I wrote a book a few years ago called Challenging Conversations. So if you've never read that book, I encourage you guys to pick up a copy. You can get the audio, uh, you can download the Kindle version, or you can get the paperback. Okay, you can go to standstrongministries.org, check out all the resources that we have available, and you can pick up your copy. But in Challenging Conversations, actually one of the chapters I dealt with was with divorce and remarriage. 
And this is what I have to say. So just pay close attention because in that chapter, I dealt with divorce and remarriage. And again, it's a very, very complicated matter. And we have to really revert back to a lot of scripture to really paint a good picture and have a good, strong establishment of what biblical theology is about when it comes to marriage and when it comes to divorce and remarriage. So this is what I say in my book, Challenging Conversations. Quote, Paul issues a warning not to refute or restrict sexual intimacy in marriage. His response is based on conjugal rights in Exodus 21, 10 through 11. There, Moses announced, quote, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money, end quote. So then I say, however, according to the Bible, conjugal rights carries a far greater meaning than just sexual intercourse. In the time of Moses, if a man left his wife for any reason or married another woman, he was still obligated to provide her with food, clothing, and care. The man possessed everything and for the most part, walked away free and clear. The woman, on the other hand, had no rights no property, and no job. She would have little to no recourse if her husband, catch this, if her husband neglected his duties. Therefore, if the husband failed to meet her conjugal rights, she was within her rights to divorce him and find shelter from someone else. In addition, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, Paul lists these marital requirements known as conjugal rights from Exodus 21, verse 10. Paul references the ideas of feeding and caring for a spouse, particularly the husband for his wife, as a foundational requirement of a covenantal marriage before God. He tells the husband to love. The word there is agape, to agape his wife, Ephesians 5, 25. A love God has bestowed on each one of us, John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 8. Paul also commands the husband to nourish his wife, Ephesians 5.29. This carries the idea of adequately feeding and nurturing both physically and spiritually the wife. And finally, Paul tells the husband to cherish his wife at the end of verse 29. This means to be warm, to take care of. The implication here is that the husband should clothe and shelter his wife. Based on the idea of conjugal rights, the husband is called to provide for his wife, to care for her, and to love her in Christ. Neglecting to care for a spouse's conjugal rights was in direct violation of the marriage vows and therefore was a probable cause for divorce. It was a form of physical abuse and in no way part of a marriage that was honorable to the Lord. At the time of Paul's writings, these divorce laws were accepted and practiced among Jews, Romans, Greeks, and those of other cultures. It would be hard to believe that the readers in the first century mistook Paul's meaning of what justified divorce, end quote. So, what we need to look at now in verse 4, when he says, For the wife does not have authority over his own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So again, we have to keep this in context and make sure that we don't just cut off not only a part of this verse, but we make sure that this verse is maintained in the context. So right off the bat, 
what he now goes into, once now that we understand what conjugal rights are, and we go to Ephesians 5, where Paul elaborates it even in greater detail, we see that marriage is not to be dominated by one person. You are to treat your spouse as someone who is meant to meet your demands. Okay, that's not how we're to treat our spouse. If you're married, your spouse is not meant to meet your demands and desires. There ought to be complete equality between a married couple. And that was another thing that was a problem, not just in in Judaism, but also in the Greek culture. You know, women were very, very um, diminished and people were very demeaning towards women and they considered, again, we would use a phrase second-class citizen, that's wrong. There is equality. And the man is to cherish his wife as, as the scripture says in Proverbs eighteen twenty two, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And Proverbs 12, verse 4, the wife is the crown of the husband's life. So now when he talks in verse 5 and following, this is where now he gets into specifics. Okay, and we're going to see the difference between him giving the commands of God, which we know already the order is marriage between a man and a woman, a biological, okay, chromosomally man and woman, got to be so specific these days not somebody who thinks they are the opposite of what their sex that they were given at birth so now he talks about the depriving in verse 5 this is where a lot of people get confused do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control so building off his previous point of what we just talked about in verse 4 about not not having authority over each other um, and dominating, right? Each, you know, you belong to the wife and the wife belongs to the husband. You're one flesh. So Paul now is stressing how important it is that there's not punishment. There's not, there's not neglect within the marriage. And he's specifically talking about sexual intimacy. And this is important, my friends, because again, we are sexual creatures. That is a part of our identity. It's not the whole so even when we have desires, that doesn't mean whatever desire you have, your spouse is to meet that desire. That's not what Paul's saying here. What he's stressing is this, it's important that one of the spouses or both are, you're not, you're not punishing the other by withholding sex. And in some cases in that culture, and this was the case for some in Corinth, they were taking a vow of celibacy when they got married. And again, that's not meeting the needs that are in a marriage. It is natural for there to be attraction and sexual attraction and and to be romantic and to share an intimacy. That is a natural thing that helps blossom and strengthen a marriage. So of course, regular sexual relationships should be the standard for any normal and healthy marriage. But then he says, except by agreement. Now what he's referring to is yes, there are going to be times, and I've counseled a lot of couples, where they are struggling in communication. And they feel threatened, or they feel at odds, or there's conflict, and things need to be resolved. And what happens? Well, of course, if there's tension between a couple, if they're arguing, if there are disagreements, if there's fights, if there's name-calling, if there's a lack of love and respect, then there's not going to be sexual intimacy. Okay, 
Now, if that's the case, yes, that's what Paul's referring to. There are times, there are exceptions in a marriage uh, when the couple has to agree. Notice he says, agree for a designated period. Okay, so if you're struggling in intimacy, if that's the case, what Paul's doing is he's directing that couple to agree for a designated period to pray for their marriage and also for one another. Notice what he says here, um, that you are to devote yourselves to prayer. So notice that the point is not that you just say, I don't like you, I don't know if we should still be married, and you're not seeking God's wisdom and counsel to reconcile. That Paul doesn't agree with because that's not the way he presents this. He says, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So the, the, the focal point is let's get back to the Lord. And a lot of relationships don't do this. A lot of married couples who are Christians, they don't get out the word of God and say, okay, we're struggling in our marriage. Let's read through Ephesians 5 and let's repent. And let's get help. Let's bring a pastor in. Let's bring a biblical counselor in. So Paul's saying, if that's the case, again, for a designated period, pray for your marriage, pray for one another. And the main course of action is to be a spiritual one, not a selfish one. So again, you're not, you're not withholding something that you ought to give your spouse and in, in, in return your spouse to you. And again, this is not a contractual agreement. This is a covenant. So the, the wife doesn't say to the husband, I'll have sex with you and then you buy me things. Or I'll have sex with you, spend time with me. Right? It's, this is not an agreement. It's okay, you do this and I'll do that. That's not what he's saying either. So it's not built on selfishness. It's not built on a contract. It's a covenant. You're one flesh. And after a period of time, the married couple is to come together again and share in sexual intimacy. So the end result is for them to grow from this. And notice this is not a long period of time. In the Greek, the limited time is it's a designated period with an end result. So it's not like, well, we'll just see. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, if you don't ask for forgiveness and if you don't change your ways, then we're never going to have sex again. Like that's threatening and that's not biblical. And I can't tell you how many couples that sat across from me and that's how they are responding to one another. And that's not good. It's not healthy. So notice in verse six now, he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So then this is now where we got to make sure the difference between a concession and command. And this is sometimes where I've even found myself and says, okay, look, the scripture is not emphatic about these things. So we have to take what the wisdom of scripture is. And again, how do we do that? We look at what marriage is. So when you have a, when you, when somebody presents a particular issue in their marriage, a situation or multiple instances where they have fought with each other and they're at odds and they're on the brink of divorce, there are going to be some concessions that you'll present to them as a biblical support. And that's what Paul's doing here. So let's understand this. There were certain Jewish laws that gave concessions for weakness. Okay, so Paul knows this. And some of them have probably been influenced by this. So again, one of the concessions is like, well, you know, if, you, if you're not having sex with your spouse and you're married, then go have sex with a prostitute. You're not married to that person. No big deal. And you have these desires, so there are concessions when you're weak sexually. No. But Paul was merely conceding, again, in verses 6 and 7, is if a couple agrees for whatever reason to abstain from sexual intercourse for a period, that is between them. Okay, 
So he's conceding that point. Now, the New King James Evangelical Study Bible says the term translated concession is soignome. And it occurs only here in the New Testament. So again, this was not a common thing that Paul did by conceding things or making concession on things. This isn't a compromise. The Evangelical Study Bible says it carries the idea of mutual agreement. In other words, Paul emphasized that it is his instruction that his instruction rests on the mutual agreed upon truths and was not a commandment that was to be enforced out of duty. Now, it is disputed whether the pronoun this refers to the previous passage or looks ahead of the following verse, end quote. So it is important to recognize that Paul gave an exception, not a command, for any married couple who's abstaining from sex are doing so for the sake of drawing close to the Lord and coming back as a reconciled force. That is the key here. So if that's you, I want you to heed that. That is so important. Now, obviously, if you say that is me and we are, we are not there, then I am encouraging you. And this is, again, one of the reasons why you need to be plugged into a local a body. You need to seek the help of your spiritual leaders and confidence. So then he says, I wish that all of you were like me. You were, you were single, basically, he says, but each has his own gift from God. Now that word gift is charisma. So now Paul's transitioning is to singleness, okay? Now there are those like Paul who were called to celibacy. Now again, as I was saying earlier, some commentary suggests that Paul may have been a widower. Uh, both marriage and singleness, what Paul's getting at, are a gift. And people need to serve the Lord according to their married status or their single status, okay? And I think it's sad that a lot of people who are married look down on people who are single, and again, across the board, people who are single, we call them, you know, college and career groups, right? Now, a lot of those people that are mangling um, within the college and career group are looking for a spouse, okay? But they're just currently single. But there are those who, and I, and my wife and I have friends, people who are older than us uh, who are single, okay? Now, each one has its benefits, and that's what we have to understand. Even Jesus mentioned that there are some people who are born as a eunuch or they decided to become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, Matthew 19, 12. And that's what Paul was getting at with him. You know, he wasn't obligated to someone, okay? He was married to Christ. Now we all are, don't get me, don't get me wrong. Spiritually, we're married to him. He's our bridegroom. But there is an advantage in some ways for people who are not married to just full on and, and there are some missionaries that my wife and I have supported through the years who are single and I think some of them we've had conversations with them hope someday but they trust the Lord and they're using that gift of singleness and that gift of celibacy to show self-control and there are some people guys they just don't have the desire they don't have the desire to be married and they don't have the desire to have sex now of course they want to be loved they want to be encouraged they want to be recognized and supported of course but they don't have the desire to have that in marriage. So he says here in verse eight, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, so notice, but if, if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. The point he's making, before I look at the last phrase and we close this thing out, 
that what, what he's saying is that there are people right now who are single, but they have these desires and you can't neglect that. Now, again, that does not mean suppress them, punish yourself. And it doesn't mean, oh, well, you have these desires. You're trying to be single. You're trying to prove a point, And then, okay, go relieve yourself with someone or whatever. No, he's not saying that at all. Paul clearly was content in his giftedness of singleness. And some people who have been married before and lost a loved one, they lost their spouse, are still called to marriage, okay? And there's others that I'm sure you know that I know that have lost a spouse and they say, hey, you know what? I had a great marriage. We had a great family. We have kids and grandkids now, whatever the case may be. And that was my true love. And I know I'll never be able to love somebody else like that. And I don't have a desire to remarry. That's singleness. That's a giftedness. And Paul's like, good for you. But if you cannot exercise self-control, again, let's understand some. There wasn't an exact scripture that Paul was pulling from, okay, to answer such complexity within relationships that were happening in Corinth. All Paul could do is offer pastoral counsel, his experience, what he's seen, understanding what marriage is about and the requirements and the duties and responsibilities. So people say, remember, marriage is not just a contractual agreement where you meet the needs of someone else sexually in a selfish way. That's not marriage. So if you can't love, like husbands, if, you, if you're not gonna love your wife as Christ loved the church, don't get married. And don't just get married because you just wanna have sex. That's not gonna help either. So it's not wise for a person just to attempt to remain single if they're called to be married. So that's the other side of things. You know, you have to trust the Lord. Sometimes people just give up and say, well, there's nobody out there for me. And they just give up. And then they just struggle. And then sometimes they'll sleep around and then they feel guilty. And then over time, what that does is it makes it even worse. So I've even counseled people in that sense where it's like, listen, you keep, saying that you're going to try to remain single and be self-controlled and get into a singles group and then you slip up and then you feel bad about it and then of course there's consequences to your sin and then it almost puts you right back to the starting point. So instead of with self-control and your singleness to the point where you get married, so if you're burning with passion, then you have to make sure, and listen, my friends, it's so important, that you're not abusing your position and giving in and jeopardizing you as a person who's called to marriage. Now remember, Paul's refuting the, the, the prevalence within the Greek romance to celebrate the cravings of sexual desires, and that certainly is in our culture today. Going back to my book, Challenging Conversations, I have a whole book or a whole chapter on premarital sex. And there's a lot of people out there who profess to be Christians and sleeping around and saying there's nothing wrong with it. But if you're burning with passion, my friends, that is an indication where, um, that doesn't mean just because you burn with passion, you want to have sex, that you're called to marriage. It's called to marriage. But that that is something to look at, okay? And, and, and remember, burning with passion is just one aspect we we should we as like for me as a married man still to this day with 22 plus years of marriage i should i should have the passion to want to love my wife more now than when i first met her when we were first engaged and so paul's encouraging people not to give into your flesh but to resist the their fleshly desires by exercising self control until that time comes 
And I'll be honest, as I close, that was me. I had to finally just say, I'm not going to keep dating and look around and compromise my status um, in, in, you know, in terms of holiness. My body is to glorify the Lord. And there, there finally came a time, and with the help of people in my life who, who are mentoring me and protecting me and modeling faith, who said, you need to abstain from even dating because I always wanted to be with somebody. I didn't want to be alone. Now, I knew I was called to marriage, but I had to show self-control. And that was so important in my life to finally say, okay, God, I need to trust you that you'll bring the person in my life and, it, and I won't be the perfect person when that time comes because you're going to bring this person in my life to help me be the man of God you call me to be. But I want to make sure that I'm exercising self-control and that I'm not just abusing my status of singleness, but I'm there to draw close to you. And then in time, you'll bring somebody in my life and together as my charisma, my giftedness is to be married and to serve you in the ministry, you're going to bring someone in my life who's going to do that with me. And he has. So I pray, my friends, that that has encouraged you. If this has triggered anything, if this has created some more questions in your mind, know that we are available. There are resources at standstrongministries.org. You can contact us by emailing us at info at standstrongministries.org. But go back and re-listen to this. We're going to continue to build after verse 10 next week. So make sure you guys look forward to that. Share this with your friends who are single or, or are married or struggling. That, that Hopefully this can really kind of bring some clarity to their issues. And lastly, as you guys know, we are not able to produce and to uh, really push this, this podcast out without your prayers and your financial support. So if you want to give on a monthly basis and become a Stand Strong supporter to continue to help fuel this podcast and even Challenging Conversations podcast and all of the equipping that we do in schools and churches around the country and all the content that are impacting people around the world, if you want to be a part of the work that we're doing, I want you guys to prayerfully consider how you could become a Stand Strong supporter. Every month, you can go to standstrongministries.org. You can click on Donate. And you can fill out all the information there and become a monthly donor. And all of the donations are tax exempt. We are a 501c3. We are a nonprofit ministry that exists to help reinforce biblical truth in your life. So we can't do that without you guys. So thank you in advance for anyone listening who's going to go to standstrongministries.org and you're going to click the donate button. And you're going to start giving on a monthly basis. We appreciate your support. We love you guys. Until next, until next time. Keep standing strong in the word of God. Music